It's better to be a company that is customer-centric with great technology, driving a future that's good for our planet, and it's more profitable than it is to resist change. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello again and welcome to a new edition of EEI's Global Circuit Podcast. My name is Lawrence Jones, Vice President of International Programs. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Greg Jackson. Greg is the founder and CEO of Octopus Energy Group based in the UK. Greg, welcome to the Global Circuit Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Listen, Greg, let's just start with one thing I'm fascinated about. So, so in the UK, Octopus Energy is the fourth largest supplier. So just introduce Octopus Energy to our listeners around the world. Yeah, so Octopus Energy is a, an energy group. Uh, we've got two main activities. One is uh, the generation and supply of energy, and the other is technology development. And they work together like yin and yang. Uh, you know, energy is this kind of $2 trillion sector globally, and yet most of it runs on systems that are you know, two decades old. Uh, now, that was kind of okay in the kind of traditional energy world, but as we're facing into the energy transition, and we're going from a world of fossil fuel plants that you can turn on and off to renewables that are dependent on wind, sun, and water. Uh, so we need a much more dynamic digital energy system to make the most of green energy when it's abundant and, and to mean that we're not so dependent on it when it's not. Interesting. Um, I, you mentioned technology. Um, so you have an extensive experience, Greg, as a... A digital entrepreneur, I would I would say, um, and so also as an investor. So maybe you can share a little bit about the catalysts that led you to found uh, Octopus Energy. There's a whole bunch of them. I, I think you know, like right now we're in the middle of an energy crisis, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But you know, every every decade we have energy crises, and I think. You know, I grew up during energy crises where, you know, with power cuts, uh, where my single mom couldn't afford the, the energy bills, uh, where we had our power cut off. And I think for me, that left a deep feeling that, uh, you know, finding ways to make energy more affordable was critical for society. At the same time, you know, as an entrepreneur, I built technology businesses and what you found was every sector that we built um, is sort of technology platforms or uh, transformation then, every sector thought technology wasn't going to make, you know, kind of damage it that much, change it that much. I, I remember working with clothing retailers that said clothes can never go online because people need to try them on. And today, clothes are one of the biggest online segments. So uh, having kind of worked in tech, what I'd seen was time and again, when tech hit a sector, it changed it more than anyone expected, driving prices down and opening up new possibilities. And I guess the last bit for me was that I joined Greenpeace when I was 15 or 16 years old. You know, I, I care about our planet. And you could see that if you use technology to drive down energy costs, particularly to make the most of, of renewables, actually, you can see it's a holy grail where you could make energy cheaper while it goes cleaner. Now, for a long time, I think people in energy have, have kind of felt, you know, certainly the, the, the policymakers have felt that going green was going to cost us more. If we could use tech 
to make going green costs less, then everyone's going to want to go green, even if they're a climate change skeptic. And, and hopefully there's not too many of those left anymore. So for me, it was, the, it was really seeing the opportunity to use technology to drive the, the sector for the better. Interesting. So, so how has that sort of a digital mindset, Greg, informed your leadership style? Because when you look at Octopus Energy, it's fascinating what you guys are doing. So how has that digital mindset sort of informed, but also shaped you as a leader? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and I think uh, in a technology-led business, you tend to have a lot less hierarchy. And instead, you create networks, a mesh organization. Um, uh, because it's far easier to empower, for example, people on the front line to give them all of the tools they require to look after a customer than it is in a world where you know everything is dictated by slow moving systems. And so, first of all, you can make it a much more human organization. And by the way, it's worth noting, isn't it, that you know we think of companies like Facebook as a tech company, but Facebook's success is because you know it's, it's one of the most human things in the world. It's how people connect and communicate. And I think technology-driven organizations often have a lot of skill and strength around there. So I think that the tech mindset is, uh, it creates not only a more dynamic organization, but a more human one. And where learning flows through the organization very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if you look at the pace of change we've seen in things like, uh, you know, the world of mobile telephony, you know, when Steve Jobs launched the iPhone, none of us knew that, none of us could have foreseen the impact it would have on the cab industry, on vacation rentals, uh, even on our ability to handle a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But it unleashed this pace of change. And I think in the same way, we need tech, digital tech, to unleash this pace of change in energy. And that requires organizations that can really quickly adapt. So as we learn how someone behaves differently, charging an electric car from filling a, you know, a gasoline engine, you know, that learning needs to be able to disseminate very quickly to consumer products and propositions, but even through to the energy system that supplies it. You know, how do you need to change your transmission and distribution, your utilities, uh, the, the way in which people pay for it to accommodate this rapid change in society? Yeah, you know, many in our audience, uh, Greg, are, are leaders of corporations like yourself, and many are also up-and-coming leaders. So, so how has the digital mindset, how has that helped you as you approach your role as a leader of a global organization? What are some of the lessons you've learned along the way that have shaped your leadership style? Yeah, I mean, first of all, in terms of shaping the style, I think uh, in a traditional organization, it's much harder to empower people on the front line. Um, they just have to do as they're told, you know, because traditional systems don't allow the information to flow enough for alternative approaches. Um, but um, so for me, one of the greatest things I ever learned was um, I'd been at Procter & Gamble and, you know, I was taught all the classic management styles. And then I was running a small business and, and, I, and I went through the reception. Tina, who did customer service, was in reception. She was on the phone to a customer. And you could tell it was a tough call. So I lent in and gave her some advice on how to handle it. She finished the call and she put the phone down. And then she gave me a death stare. And, and I was like, 27 years old tina was in her 40s and tina just looked at me and she said greg i was at this company before you were here 
and I'm going to be here when you're gone. I love the company. And I bring up two boys and an unemployed husband on the poxy wage this company pays. If I can do that, I can do anything the company wants. Mm. So don't tell me how to do my job again. And there, was this, there were a few people standing around. There was shocked silence. And I realized Tina was right. Actually, you know, the challenges that, 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 that people face in their everyday lives that they manage to overcome, they're juggling a family and a mortgage and taking kids to schools and to sports clubs and then taking part in community activities as well as working. You know, if they can do that, they can do what companies want. What most companies don't have is the tools and, and, and technology to enable them to do so. And so part of this was about, you know, kind of learning to give people freedom and responsibility. There is one other thing I think is really important in tech that is and in digital that, that isn't necessarily well understood. And that is that um, there was a, an article, I think it was in the McKinsey Quarterly, and it said, why is technology transformation so difficult? And the subheading, the answer was because the IT department is still taking orders. And what you find in, in a tech-led company is that, you know, on the board and the leadership team, you have a mix of, of, of skills in, in commercial, organizational, and technology. And time and again, what that enables is the conversation that says, not having a traditional organization, the, the, the business people will say, the tech people, please will you build us this thing to deliver the business we want. And in a tech-centric organization, the technology people say, hey, I can build you this thing. It needs certain commercial decisions, but it's going to be by far the best thing. And, and I think that's such an important conversation that we need to understand that too often organizations build massive, complex, unwieldy technology because it was designed to meet a business need without thinking about the tech. And, and a great example is um, uh, Uber. You know, when Uber first launched, you couldn't book a cab in advance. You could only do it real time. Now, anybody in the cab industry, if you'd said to them, can you build an app for cabs? They'd have said like a red line requirement is the ability to book a cab in advance because without that, you can't go to the airport, you can't go to the train station, you can't go to a job interview. But Uber knew that from a tech perspective, of course you can make a, a, a cab bookable in advance. But it creates a lot of failure cases. You've got to deal with you know, the driver stuck in traffic, the driver oversleep, and the other job overran. Uh, all those failure cases that can destroy customer experience. So actually, the better customer experience and the better, the simpler, more elegant tech, more scalable tech, came from choosing not to do that stuff. Now, by the way, today, Uber has that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't add that till they'd got, you know, this astonishing, elegant, and scalable solution. And I think companies could do really well to always think about that. Whenever they're trying to add new features, new complexity, it's actually not what tech companies do. Mm, interesting. So, so that brings us to a very interesting part of this conversation, which is about Octopus Energy, the way you operate is very different from many of your, you know, your, uh, from many other providers, right? And, and so you've now expanded your operations to the US, uh, you have operations in other countries. So just, just talk about the business model because it, I mean, I'm a level of intrigue about what you guys do. I mean, from a positive standpoint. So, so talk about the business model that Octopus Energy sort of promotes. Yeah, so traditionally in, in energy, the consumer, has been treated as a, they just want to switch a switch and you know, lights come on. You know, when we started the business, we said, look, the, the, the world's going to change. 
Um, the first thing is uh, consumers got higher expectations than they used to have in every sector. You know, increasingly we expect our deliveries to be same day, next day. Um, you know, we expect uh, online services to be instant, update immediately to give us clear information and to be available wherever and whenever. Um, and so, uh, you know, consumers in energy absolutely deserves better than the traditional view of being a, a rate payer. And, you know, you, all you do is, is get a, you know, a bill or a statement and pay it, and that's the relationship done. Uh, but in the world of the energy transition, this is dramatically more important. You know, the moment you buy an electric car, you've got something which, when you plug it in, is the equivalent of a thousand light bulbs. It really, really matters when that car charges. You know, if you get home from work and just plug it in and it starts charging immediately, you're going to be taking electricity at the time the system is in peak stress. So we need ways of helping people use power differently in this world. And, you know, the best way of doing that is to truly understand the consumer, uh, how they view the world and, and, and what's important to them, and then build products and services which enable us to look after that for them in a way that they love. And so, uh, you know, the ability to plug your car in and just trust that it's going to charge at a time that suits you to have the cheapest power and suits you to have enough power in the battery at the time you need it, um, it's critical. And you need a utility that, that, or an energy company that carries that degree of trust. And it's not just about, you know, as, as we, for example, the US is, is, is brilliantly beginning to drive heat pumps hard, the electrification of heat. Now, that could be a massive load on the grid, or if those heat pumps are controlled intelligently, it could be fairly sympathetic. It could be a positive part of the grid. But you've got to trust it. You know, you've got to trust whoever's controlling that heat pump that your home's going to be warm when you need it, cool when you need it, um, and that they're going to be putting your interests at heart. They're going to be making it as cheap as possible for you in that process. At the same time, energy generation is changing. You know, as I said earlier, we're going to a world of renewables, which are abundant sometimes and much less abundant other times. So the smart thing that a utility or an energy system, an energy company needs to do now is matching supply and demand. But it can do that by shifting demand because these new high utility, high consumption devices. Um, but it can only do that if customers trust it. And that requires a brand that people can embrace and engage and which consistently demonstrates its work in their behavior. Yeah. By the way, this is more complicated than anyone realizes. There are so many variables. Um, so, you know, if you want people to change the time they charge an electric car, do you penalize them for using it at peak or do you give them a bargain for using it off peak? Do you do that through, you know, um, uh, in drop, putting a timetable in the charger, timetable in the car, giving the consumer a timetable? Do you change the timetable every day depending on what's going on with the weather? How do you make sure they're going to have enough battery at 5M to go to the hospital when having a baby? We've got to think about all these things. Now, that requires the same mindset in energy as we used to have in you know, FMCG or as in consumer goods and, and, and tech companies. Interesting. So, so I like how you frame it because it brings me to the issue of customer experience, right? So it's perhaps safe to say that one of the things Octopus and Energy seem to be going uh, around doing is sort of a really trying to shape the customer experience. And so you've developed this 
cloud-based service Kraken, right? So tell us a little bit about the cloud-based service and how that has helped you do what you talked about in terms of the customer experience being designed or shaped. Yeah, so I mean, every day, what we're waking up and thinking about is how do we improve the customer experience of our business? And we talk about loads of ideas for that. Kraken uh, is our cloud-based technology platform, which enables us to deliver those outstanding customer experience. And now Kraken is, um, it's a full stack. So it, it knows everything from the generation forecast for every generation point, whether that be household solar panels or community solar or you know, uh, grid scale wind farm, uh, interconnectors, um, and indeed, of course, what's going on with the fossil fuels, uh, right through to what the constraints are on the distribution network and the grid, and then through to the, the uh, half hour or five minute um, forecast for every household for their consumption. And so by having all of that data, it can first of all optimize the system to provide cheaper electricity for people, particularly if they're using it in the ways that are best for the system and best for them. And we automate that so they don't need to think about it, but for people who do want to think about it, then you, know, you can, we offer, for example, you know, times that uh, they'll get paid money to uh, shift their energy consumption in a given day. It's there for people who want it, for people who don't, it, it, you know, it doesn't do any harm. It's a bit like the yellow label stickers at a supermarket you know, when they're clearing stock out. So you have all these different layers to provide the best possible value and experience for customers in the changing energy landscape. But then it really goes down to things like um, uh, being able to, last winter, in Europe, we started seeing rapidly escalating energy prices. And so through Kraken, we actually ran a program we called Winter Workout, and it allowed customers to opt in and say whether they wanted to save 5 10 or 15% on their gas bill, and then use their smart meter data to do a, sort of remote, a personal trainer for, for energy consumption. Every week, giving them feedback on how they were doing versus their target. But that target was weather adjusting using machine learning. So if you had a cold weather period, of course you can use more energy. It wouldn't damage your target, it adjusted the target. Now what that did, it enabled people to save 14% on their energy. Uh, that's hundreds of pounds. Uh, without sacrificing comfort and warmth, 30,000 people shared their tips with each other. That whole program was put together in two or three weeks and iterated across a 12-week period. Because with cloud-based tech, you can do that. I mean, I'm, Kraken is... Uh, it runs something called continuous integration, continuous deployment. I don't know if this is too tech, but you know, traditional world, you get a software release every quarter or every month. Kraken uh, has a release roughly 100 times a day. Each release building an incremental improvement versus the last. And, and, and so you know, Kraken's on version 55,000 in the last five years. <laughs> now that pace of change is reflecting the, uh, everything you learn about customer behavior and how to help customers. Hmm. It's interesting you talk about the customer experience from a from the perspective where you sit. But if you would just just offer your perspective briefly on infrastructure, I mean, we need infrastructure more broadly, right? So, do you see the idea of the customer experience being shaped using technology, even if you are in the infrastructure business? So you're not a retail, but you are the retailer is your customer. So if you're a, a big wires company, and we'll get into that a little bit, we'll talk about the grid. But do you see the idea of customer centricity or customer experience going along the entire value chain? Hugely. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, 
a wires company needs to become customer expert. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that there are huge opportunities throughout that value chain from customer engagement and uh, behavior change in the right places. So two, three examples, if that's all right. Um, I mean, the first one then is that in most um, systems, uh, the wires are, I don't know, roughly 50% utilized because they're built for peak capacity and off peak that, you know, often way, way underused. So if you can shift consumer behavior, you can essentially carry more electricity through the same system. Mm-hmm. And that's important as people are adopting electric cars and electric heating and electrifying society as a whole. Now, by the way, a lot of uh, reward models for, for utilities, you know, they get rewarded for the amount of infrastructure, not for the utilization. So a utility doesn't necessarily benefit from that change. So we need regulators to be thinking about this and saying, hang on, you know, if utilities can get more out of the same infrastructure because consumers use energy differently, differently, we can cut the cost of the transition. But the exciting opportunity, you know, if you're in the world of electrifying, you know, electrifying heating and electrifying transport, you're basically creating a world where there's a lot, lot more power, a lot more electricity. And so if you're a utility and you can carry two, three, four times more electricity, but only upgrade your infrastructure by 50% or 100%, there's a huge economic gain to be had as long as the right conversations have between utilities and regulators. And then we need to think about things like, you know, where do we build infrastructure? So uh, quite often in, in many countries, you know, uh, communities don't necessarily want a big wind farm or you know, a lot of solar farms. But if by putting those generation um, types close to community, you can give the community cheaper energy, they all want it. So you, know, you start getting this thing where instead of uh, communities protesting against infrastructure, you can have them demanding infrastructure. So actually, here in the UK is a good example. Uh, it's sort of, um, we built something. We called it Winder. Forgive the name. It's uh, Tinder for wind. Um, but it's where communities and landowners uh, can register to say that you know, they want renewable generation near them. And then uh, it reveals where we've got uh, grid capacity so we can use existing infrastructure and uh, increasing the overlays like wind speed and um, uh, uh, solar um, performance so that we can really optimize where we're going to put generation, but not just think about the, 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 the physical geography, but the human geography as well. Mm. And I see in the IRA, you know, th- there's a lot of focus on how, um, you know, communities that are not wealthy need to benefit from this change. And the opportunity to start bringing you know, cheap, clean generation near those communities and giving them cheap power so they're no longer as dependent on you know, much bigger forces, but actually they've got access to cheaper local power. It's gonna be incredible. So I think this community engagement meets um, a consumer behavior at every level. And, and, and I guess the last quick thought on that actually is, you know, once you've built a wind turbine outside, a, outside a, a small town and they're getting cheap electricity when the, when the turbine's turning, What's the first thing they do? Well, they look at that turbine, they go, that's interesting. If I had an electric car, I could get in cheap power for it right now. Mm. If I had an electric heat pump, I could get in cheap power. And they start embracing the move to a world of cheaper, greener power. Mm. So you, you mentioned a couple of things, which I think speaks to your 
approach to the energy transition, you talked about smart heating or you talk about heat pumps, which I think is part of the equation. And you know, you've talked about, you know, tariffs, if you may. But just one last thing before we move to some of the global challenges. Talk about, I'm fascinated about this intelligent octopus and your, uh, I guess, fan club. Tell me about, about those two initiatives you have. Yeah, look, I, the amount of innovation in this space is so exciting, right? And, and so um, uh, Intelligent Octopus is um, an energy tariff rate uh, where um, we give people cheap power at times that the grid price is cheap, um, but we optimize on their behalf. So you've got an app or you've got um, a smart charging device and at 5 p.m. every day, we download to the app or the charging device a schedule for all your electric, in fact, not just EVs, but you know, heat pumps and anything else, a schedule for all your controllable devices. We tell you, like, we looked at the, 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 the pricing of the next 24 hours, and here we're optimizing when your car's going to charge, uh, when your, um, if it's vehicle to grid, when your car's going to discharge, uh, when we're going to run your heating. And we kind of give you that. It's all on the app, so you can see what's going to happen, but you don't need to interact with it. It's just going to happen. If you want to override it, you just hit one button that says override it. Um, we base all that on your preferences and we learn your preferences. And machine learning is looking at how do you use your car and how much power do you use in your home. Um, currently, we do that on a 24-hour cycle. We're about to move that to a two-week cycle. So if we can see you know, what's going on with generation and electricity availability in your area, we're optimizing for your house, for your device, for the exact consumption, and then sending it straight to you. So you don't need to do anything. It just works. Mm. Fan club. It's sort of similarly dynamic. Fan club is, uh, if, we, if you're a member of the fan club and we've got a wind turbine um, that you can, essentially you can see from your house, I think within a mile or so. Um, if you can see the blades turning, you're getting cheaper power at that moment. And um, if the blades are turning fast, you're getting half price power. Mm. And um, so on average, people are getting, a, I don't know, 23%, 27% off their power bills. And they're feeling, it creates this incredible community support for cheap, local, renewable power. And you think about it from an infrastructure point of view, you know, we create a world where more and more of the power can flow over less and less infrastructure. It's a cheaper, more resilient distributed system. And it's all run by, in, in this case, all run by Kraken, with this kind of cloud-based ability. Mm. Mm. No, and people love these things, by the way. People absolutely love them. Sorry. No, I, I love the fan club approach. You know, I mean, this is actually very innovative stuff in terms of customer engagement. Uh, so, so Greg, let's let's move to where we are now. This recording has been done at a time when the world is going through lots of challenges. We've just navigated the, the, the pandemic. It's still going on to some extent. And obviously, we're dealing with the geopolitical issues, the energy crisis. So can you share a little bit about how Octopus Energy uh, has been navigating these crises? But I guess more importantly, coming back to your customer, which is where I think your passion sits, how have you been dealing with your customers to allow them to navigate this? So both how you've navigated as a company and how you're enabling your customers to navigate this process as well. Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, you know, we cannot overstate the seriousness of the energy crisis in Europe and Asia. I, I know the US is experiencing um, serious energy inflation, but I think you know, at one point last week, the price of natural gas in uh, Europe 
was 15 times the normal price. You know, the way that I, I tried to help policymakers and the media understand this, if, you know, if that was a pint of beer, that would be $50 a pint. Um, that's the reality of the energy crisis as it hits Europe. And because of the um, way in which power is priced across Europe, um, uh, which is essentially based on the most expensive marginal unit generation, which is from gas, power is similarly expensive. It means that um, the bill for a typical household in the UK is going from being 4% of, of household income to 20% of household income. And there are similar pictures in other countries. Governments are reacting in different ways um, you know, to, to restrict this. Um, and that's having different impacts on consumers, on companies, and on public finance. And I think almost every day, governments are thinking how to handle this. From our perspective as a company, by far the most important thing is how we look after our customers. I mean, briefly, in terms of kind of ourselves, you know, it's brutal for our finance and trading teams, you know, when they wake up every day and see, see these charts going ever further north. But the reality is, you know, sensibly hedged European energy companies with the right trading arrangements and the right finance arrangements are, are okay financially. Um, by the way, not everyone is. I mean, there are some huge utilities that are being on the wrong side of the commodities trade where it's not survivable. But I think for companies in our situation, in our market, it's hard work. The, the thing it's doing is stopping our ability to grow because we can't offer customers better deals. Um, and it's causing our customers incredible anxiety across Europe. Uh, that's the UK, Germany, you know, um, Italy, Spain. Uh, France is less so because of government action. I think in terms of what... what you know, what we've done for customers, uh, things like the crisis kicked off at the end of last winter, got really serious. And I think, um, for example, we went straight out and bought thousands of electric blankets. So if one of our customers phones us and they're telling our team that they are worried about putting their heating on, and this will typically be you know, an elderly person, maybe a disabled one, but someone who's not massively mobile, we'll send them an electric blanket. And that means they can heat themselves for, you know, four cents an hour. 10 or 20 times cheaper than heating a whole home. So at least they're not um, suffering health impact from the anxiety about heating. Um, we This year, we're procuring five times more blankets than we did last year. And now that's the last resort. You know, no one's saying that's the right solution. But we've got to look after our customers. I can't have my customers terrified about heating themselves. I think the um, other stuff we did, you know, I talked earlier about the winter workout program. So energy efficiency is a massive. Now, a lot of the time we think of energy efficiency as being having to deal with the fabric of homes. Mm -hmm. And of course, that can be important and helpful, but you can't, you know, there isn't a lot of time to do that in the crisis. So we're really helping people understand you know, which devices in their home, like a gas furnace, a gas boiler, can be quickly adjusted to maybe reduce consumption 10, 15% without damaging comfort and show them how to do that. We've got hundreds of people now that will be going into people's homes, providing efficiency advice, dealing with thermostats, looking for um, uh, you know, drafts and leaks. Um, beyond that, you know, setting up um, customer assistance funds so that where you know, customers are truly in trouble financially, we can give them some respite. All of those things are going on. By the way, Kraken enables all of this to be done in a way which we can get the right help to the right people. And there's a lot of machine learning and, and customer service behind that. Um, but I think the reality is this problem is too big for companies to solve. 
And that's why, you know, we're in deep conversation with the government about what are the best solutions. Right now, our job is get citizens through this winter um, in, in, in all the countries we operate while we get in place better long-term solutions. Now, the long-term solutions involve decoupling power and gas um, so that power prices can better reflect the costs of, you know, cheap, ever cheaper renewables um, and, uh, you know, nuclear where we've got it. Um, and that we get the price signals to build more renewables and for consumers to recognize that this is going to provide a, a greater insulation, a national security and resilience against power, against gas prices. And to start getting the fabric of your homes in a better place and to deploy heat pumps at scale. An incredible fact is that, you know, a heat pump, even if it's using electricity that's power, uh, was generated entirely from gas, is about 50% uses about 50% less gas than a gas furnace does for creating the same amount of heat because heat pumps have got the magic multiplier, you know, the three or four-fold um, uh, output of energy from input, uh, output of heat from input of electricity. So we've got these kind of medium-term fabric things. And then long-term, it really shows the need for, for, for our nations uh, to, to be, uh, you know, electrifying as much as possible. You know, you mentioned heat pump a couple of times, Greg, and we're seeing the planet getting warmer and warmer. And one thing that I'm curious about, and obviously, you know, this is not something I guess uh, you guys have delved into. Maybe you have, but what do you think about cooling? I mean, cooling could be a very, very interesting opportunity and a challenge, right? I mean, you have Africa, you have the U.S., you have Europe, seen a lot of heat waves. Have you seen people talking about the role that cooling is going to have on the energy sector? Because I think we're missing yeah. we're missing an opportunity, but a challenge if we don't tackle the cooling systems, right? So what are your thoughts on that? You're entirely right. And, and by the way, I think the U.S. in particular has a huge opportunity right now here, and, and other countries will follow. Um, first of all, I mean, we've seen temperatures over 40 degrees Celsius persistently in countries that don't normally have that. You know, you've, you've seen... Uh, you know, wildfires on the edge of London. I mean, this is a country that's famous for rain, and yet here it is in, in drought and heat. Um, and, and excess deaths from heat are a major issue. Um, as you mentioned, it's a global issue. I mean, if you look at, I mean, Pakistan at the moment, you know, is, is having the most appalling climate impacts, going from unbearably hot weather to floods. And, and, and cooling is going to be important. I think the magic of a heat pump in, in a single device, you can have heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. It does vary by housing type. That's why I mentioned the US, because I think in the US where a lot of heating is forced air heating, mm -hmm. you can use uh, the same device to give forced air cooling. So cooling and heating in the same device. Um, I think in a lot of European countries where you've got you know, hot summers and cold winters, um, again, a, a combined heat and cooling solution through the likes of a heat pump is ideal. Um, uh, there are some countries where it's a bit harder, by the way. Take the UK where um, you know, it's not really used to having hot weather and all of its heating is, is through radiators. So it's got wet heating systems, which means it's a lot harder to use a combined heat pump and cooling device. But, you know, we'll, we'll get to things like that. I think one of the interesting things with, with heating is it tends to be, uh, sorry, cooling, is it tends to be um, coincident with the solar peak. Mm -hmm. So rooftop solar, distributed solar, and grid solar can work really well with cooling. So I think, you know, as we, as we electrify our systems, 
using electricity for heating and for cooling and using renewables to power it, you know, it can work really well together. By the way, control is everything. And again, talking about cloud-based systems like Crack and the ability to be continually using you know, the kind of the price signals and the um, real-time forecasting to control this stuff is really, really important because that's the only way we'll manage the loads we're putting on grids and distribution networks um, in a way which is efficient and cheap. We have a few more minutes, Greg. I know you're very busy and you need to get back to talking about what's going to be done to help address the crisis. But I just want to, before we give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the vision and look out, you know, into, into 2030 and beyond, uh, let's talk a little bit about National Grid, ESSO, and, and you guys. You did a, an announcement about sort of a, the priorities around EVs and, and, and vehicle to grid. Can you just talk a little bit about that, that collaboration between your company and, and, and National Grid, ESO? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so first of all, um, we're living in the future, right? People always go, in the future, you'll have vehicle to grid. In the future, you know, people will have, you know, mobile handsets that can scan QR code. We're in that future. Mm. And um, increasingly, electric vehicles are um, going to become the norm. Uh, Bill Gates said, you know, technology is always slower in the beginning than people forecast and then faster in the medium to long term than you could ever have imagined. That's what we're seeing with EVs. I think 25% of the cars sold in London last quarter were plug-in EVs. Um, yeah, so today, it's a small percentage of the car fleet. It's a rapidly, rapidly growing um, percentage. And that's before we unleash the power of, for example, Chinese manufacturers you've never heard of. Right now in China, there are companies making millions of EVs and increasingly, you know, you know, we may find that the companies that dominate the EV market are not the traditional automakers. I'm sure some of them will, mm. but there'll be companies we've never heard of who, who are using the version, you know, the software will be Android for EVs. You know, the car will be a lightweight skateboard. They will have got access to great uh, source supply of batteries. Um, and the designs can be anything you imagine. And the very informed fact that you know, we've already seen the incredible number of micro mobilities, small electric scooters, right up to the traction power of a large Ford electric truck, right? This world is happening right now at scale. And the floodgates are about to open. Hmm. EVs can either be the greatest friend to the grid or the greatest enemy. Smart charging, and particularly with vehicle to grid, make it a friend. Um, so today, built into crack, and we have um, really smart ways of controlling vehicle to the grid. So the customer plugs their car in, and it can, um, you know, in, in our heads as humans, the way we think about this is it will charge up, um, you know, maybe when the sun's shining or during the day when, when the grid is not so stressed. It will discharge into the house, into the grid during the early evening peak, and it will charge up again overnight or something like that. We see dramatically smarter patterns because the machine learning is reacting to the real-time price signals and constraints and the fact there are other people with these technologies. Um, and that's what it's really doing is flattening the load on the grid, flattening the load for the distribution network and bringing cheaper power for the household. Now, the, the arrangement we've got with ESO really has been um, as, you know, as, as system operators are looking for how do 
how do they accommodate this, this massive change? The answer is going to be not central control. Like, you know, sometimes people talk about virtual power plants, the idea that you'll get 50,000 cars or whatever aggregated and you turn them on and off like a power plant. The reality is we'll get a far more efficient system and a better customer experience if each of those cars is being intelligently controlled based on signals that are flowing around, just like the internet. Um, you know, decentralized systems like that are more resilient, more robust, dramatically more efficient. You can't solve these problems, you know, in a sort of central control room. And that's the, that's the kind of program we're rolling out. The customers who have taken vehicle to grid um, cars have been our happiest customers. And, um, uh, and by the way, it acts as a gateway drug. Once you're used to your car working like that, you know, you start thinking about getting solar panels or a home battery, um, a heat pump. Because you're like, if I can live my life in a way that, frankly, is easier than before and cheaper, why can't I do everything like this? And so I think we now need to capitalize on this kind of the, the EV being, frankly, a better car as the gateway drug for enabling people to electrify everything in their society, everything in their, their lives. And in doing so, yeah, the smart tech will, will make it um, a, a lot easier and cheaper than people think. Yes, I think what you're saying, though, then that is, is the behavioral change that's necessarily being enabled by technology, right, which is great to, to, to hear. Yeah. And, and I think before we wrap up, you said a couple of things that I want to just reinforce here. You talked about the role between the utilities and the regulators talking. You talk about really dealing with your customer. One word you mentioned a couple of times that I think I just want you to just emphasize again what it means from your perspective is the currency of trust, right? All of this seemed to hinge on trusting your customers, your customers trusting you, regulators trusting utilities, utilities trusting regulators. How do we begin to really maximize trust? Can you just say a few words? Because I know that's something that you're passionate about yeah. in terms of customers. How salient is trust in terms of how we yeah. move forward going uh, to deal with these challenges? It's critically important. And I think, you know, one of the truisms in life is that if someone says, trust me, you probably shouldn't trust them. Trust is something that you earn by your behavior. Okay. And so what it needs is utilities to think about the times that, um, you know, they can behave in a way that is demonstrably putting the customer first. And that's how they earn trust. Uh, so, for example, you know, how clear and transparent are we about our financial relationship with customers? Uh, you know, at Octopus, every customer's got a live, you know, account page telling them where they stand today financially. If they want to put money on their account or take it out, it's up to them. They can do it. Um, if they want to see our, you know, we show them a forecast, building in seasonality and likely price changes to show where their financial position is going to be. This is the kind of thing that often means scary for utilities where you want an arm's length relationship, like, just pay the bill. But actually, by being transparent, you build trust that then lets you take, put your arm around them and take them on this journey. And then things like, you know, what happens if they phone you up because they've got a problem? Mm -hmm. you know, do you react according to some SLAs that are good for you, but not for them? Or do you listen to their individual needs and help resolve that problem? Uh, and, and customers talk. You know, if, customers, if one customer has a good experience with you, They'll tell people. Uh, it's interesting. Like people think, people think utilities are boring. Uh, they're really not. You know, you, you just have to sit around a table with a bunch of people and almost always some talk about utilities crops up and people talk about them. <laughs> so I, I think utilities should be thinking hard about how they show 
they can be trusted. And it really matters. Like when we've got intelligent octopus and we're downloading a, a charging schedule to your devices, if we get that wrong, you're going to wake up and your car's going to have no charge. That's a major service failing. And, um, you know, working hard to make sure that they don't happen or if they do happen, we look after the customer, whatever it takes, that's important. Um, and I think it is an area where in, in regulated sectors, very often, essentially the trust has been devolved to the regulator. So the concept often is the companies do whatever they can within the regulation, and then the regulator is there to look after the customer. But that doesn't work in a rapidly changing world. Actually, in a rapidly changing world, the companies need to be able to innovate faster than regulation. Mm-hmm. And the regulator and the customer need to trust companies in that. So um, I, I think it really requires a more grown-up world and one that reflects other consumer-facing markets. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, you brought up a nice point when you talk about the future customer-facing world. Let's just wrap up by maybe hearing from you about Octopus Energy 2030. Let's get into the future, not too far away, I guess, but 2030. And then specifically, what, what really concerns you about the future in front of us? And, and what excites you? Because you seem to be an exciting, an, an exciting guy. So, so what concerns you about the future? What excites you about the future? And then frame this up in the context of Octopus Energy's vision or the vision you have for the company. Yeah. So first of all, look, Octopus Energy directly and working with existing utilities uh, will be a global business. I mean, we're already in 14 countries, um, but, you know, we'll continue to the point there are hundreds of millions of customers uh, on Kraken, either directly through Octopus Energy, but we're working with our many partners. Even today, by the way, 80% of the customers on Kraken, the households on Kraken, are with our utility partners, companies like Eon, um, you know, Origin, Australia, Tokyo, Gas, Japan. And I think this kind of globalization really matters because it means if you're learning something in you know, Miami, it's available in Munich, same day on the platform. And, and you know, for too long, we've thought of energy as being different in different countries. Uh, so you know, but the reality is you know, the, the, what makes for great EV charging experience or great optimization of a heat pump is the same around the world. And in the same way as, as, as companies like Amazon or Airbnb, have taken those understandings of great customer experience and, and scaled it globally. That's what we need to do here. And, and Octopus really should be a kind of key driver in that because we were built around the customer and the technology. Um, I, I think in terms of what worries me, um, uh, and by the way, where we should be, is we should be electrifying faster and cheaper than anyone imagines, right? And we'll be getting to the point that communities want this cheap green energy. And, you know, it's interesting if you have to look at things like airlines. Uh, when low-cost airlines first grew up, the, the incumbent, the flag-carrying airlines, were quite resistant to them and used every means in the book to kind of re- restrict their growth. Um, and yet, actually, what the, what the low-cost airlines did was show that massive economies of scale and, 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 and how great process could lead to a good customer experience at a much lower price. And the incumbents that kind of wrestled themselves into shape we able to embrace and adopt that, and they've been more profitable than they were in the old days. And I think for the utilities that embrace change here, uh, you know, actually, they're going to do better than they did before. It's better to be a company that is customer-centric with great technology, driving a future that's good for our planet, and it's more profitable than it is to resist change. And so, um, you know, for me, the reason I say that is, you know, what's my greatest fear? My greatest fear 
is that companies in, in the, you know, uh, trying to guard the good things they do, hold that change back. And in return, customers, the planet, and actually their own shareholders don't experience the benefits they should as quickly as they should. So I think, you know, my greatest hope is that you know, we drive this change. My greatest fear is it gets held back. Well, listen, Greg, you're doing a lot, but every leader that I talk to on this Global Circuit podcast ends the conversation by telling the audience what they do for fun, because everybody has to take a time off and just relax and enjoy. So so what, what, do, you, what do you enjoy doing when you're not trying to sort of uh, accelerate this energy transition? You know, what keeps you, and also what keeps you grounded? Because as a leader, all of us have our weak points. All of us have this place we have to go to, to sort of a, uh, regroup and, and start again so so what what do you enjoy doing on your free time and then what keeps you grounded oh man right okay look i'm gonna give you two answers right because the reality is that i'm so privileged to do what i do i kind of do it in my spare time so i, I was at dinner i was at dinner at someone's house my brother-in-law and and um as soon as we put the knife and fork down i got my laptop out and he said surely there's someone else that can do this for you and i said probably but if they did, I'd just do the next thing on the list. <laughs> and, and genuinely, like, you know, this isn't like, you know, this is because it's such a privilege and a joy to do what I do. And, and I love my team. I love the mission we're on. Uh, and, and the creative juices fire all the time about what we can do. But, uh, you know, outside of that, I've got a couple of boys. I finished work early on a Wednesday to um, pick one, pick the youngest up from school and spend the evening with them. Um, and uh, I have a passion for uh, 1980s pinball. So you might just find me down there. There's a, there's a cafe near where I live that's got a great array of 1980s pinball machines. I've got one or two myself, and they're amazing. I say 80s, it's really 1990s, to be fair. Yeah, well, well, listen, I like the fact that you prioritize family. I think it's very important. And, and really, you are doing a lot of great work, uh, Octopus Energy, and, and really, uh, I, I'm going to be following on this company. We'd love to have you guys as a member of EI and the things you guys do. Uh, and I definitely look forward to seeing you when I come to the UK uh, later on this year uh, to uh, perhaps uh, have a game of pinball. I'll, I'll see if I can uh, challenge you on that. <laughs> it, it, honestly, that is a deal. Uh, and we'll, um, why don't we, we'll do us some selfies and we'll tweet okay. it. Okay, great. Thank you, uh, honestly, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, it's been wonderful. And All uh, right. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.